You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we're joined by Ryan Webster. Ryan is the founder and one of the managing partners at Equity Yield Group, and uh, super excited to have him on board today and, and look forward to hearing his story. Ryan, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sterling. Glad to be here. Uh, Ryan, for our listeners, can you tell us uh, a little bit about your background, how you got into real estate and what you're doing these days? Yeah. Um, so I kind of started in real estate uh, years ago, um, but kind of on the other side. So I owned and operated a construction development company for a good number of years prior to transitioning into multifamily acquisitions. Uh, so we had a wide range of project experience from you know ground up construction of single family homes, uh, multifamily properties, uh, strip malls back when that was the hot thing. Um, and then since transitioned out of, you know, the build and sell model into the, the buy and hold model. Awesome. Is there any particular reason that you went into acquiring existing assets versus just continuing what you knew so well and developing and building and holding products you, you, you'd built yourself? Uh, yeah. Risk mitigation, um, and then cash flow and and tax benefits. There's not a lot of tax benefits for developers unless you're doing, you know, affordable projects or you're getting some tax credits because um, you're not holding long term to really gain the depreciation benefits that you have with buy and hold. Um, you start out with zero cash flow and a ton of debt, and you're making you know mortgage payments out of you know equity funds until you get the thing up and out of the ground, and then start leasing up. Um, where acquisition of stabilized assets, you know, you have cash flow day one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have the same response every time people ask me why I don't <laughs> do development. I'm like, well, I'm just, I'm afraid of the risk. You know, I want to buy something that's, that's cash flow and the day I show up. So yeah. um, w- tell us a, a little bit about that transition and kind of how you switched gears going from, from the development side to the acquisition side. And, uh, any, any maybe bumps in the road you hit along the way? Um, knock on wood, uh, the transition was fairly smooth. I didn't know how it was going to go, but you know, I've had years of experience running a business, years of experience, you know, in the real estate industry. So I had a good, you know, baseline understanding of how things work. I think that contributed to the smoothness of the transition. Um, you know, the, the hardest part was really being able to, to buy properties, um, sure. you know, and our, our strategy, we're very particular about what we buy. We're not just buying properties to buy properties, having been in the industry long enough and then in, invested in deals with other sponsors. Um, you know, we're really looking for quality investments, generate risk adjusted returns. Um, so getting our foot in the door with brokers to purchase these, you know, large institutional quality properties was honestly the hardest part. Absolutely. I think it's it's kind of hard for for anybody to find a deal these days in, in this yeah. market, but you are um, you're a little bit of an outlier in the the type of property. I say you're an outlier. You, I'm sure there's a million people you know in that area, but for most of the circles I run in, we're, you know, we're a lot of you know B C value add you know projects. And um, we were talking and chatting yesterday, and the property you just bought was directly from the developer. So you're you're going into A class properties. Yeah. So our, our sweet spot is really kind of this B to A minus property. Um, you know, I'm not a huge proponent of, of the luxury A class. I think there's a bit of risk and a downturn there, but uh, you know, there's people making money in all types of real estate, but that's just not our play. 
Um, but being a instructor for a number of years, uh, I'm not a heavy lift guy. I spent years working on old properties, you know, I understand how expensive those projects can get, you know, you can get cost overruns really easy with some small oversights. And then if you're in a situation where you have to hold longer terms, so, Hey, there's a downturn, you're going to hold the property longer, collect cash flow. Um, if you're looking at 1965 built property, eventually you're going to hit a big ticket maintenance item that wasn't part of your original business plan that you're going to have to find a way to capitalize. You know, that may be a capital call from investors. If you're lucky, you know, there's still liquid debt markets and maybe you can pull a small refinance and cover that. But in these newer properties, all the big ticket maintenance items, they're, you know, 20, 30 years down the road. Um, so we don't have that worry, but I am a huge proponent of a forced appreciation and the value add play, but we look for kind of light to moderate value add. Um, we'll come in and do some interior renovations, you know, quartz countertops, um, put in some new cabinet doors, new lighting, new appliances. And that's really about, about all we do, but, um, we're shopping in very strong markets. And that's another part of our investment strategy is really, finding a business and a property that that's supported by market and business fundamentals and not just, Hey, this is a nice asset. Uh, we want a reason for rents that are going up. Um, not just, Hey, we're going to drop 10 K unit and rents are going to go up. Why are rents going to go up? You know, is the demand there in, you know, in that market in that sub market is, you know, is vacancy low enough that you're going to be able to continue to lease units at these higher rents. So what markets are y'all looking in and why? Um, the biggest factor is probably migration, um, especially post COVID. Uh, we've seen an uptick in migration into kind of the Sunbelt area, Carolinas, Florida, Georgia. Um, we continue to look in Texas, haven't had any success uh, purchasing anything there yet, but, uh, really it's around jobs and people, um, you need demand for housing. Um, so we're looking for inbound migration, um, where people are employed and employed in a diverse job market. That way, uh, not all our tenants are working in the same industry or at the same employer. Um, God forbid that employer leave the market. We know that we're going to be okay. I always, I always say, I don't, I don't want to buy in areas that could go the way of Detroit when the auto industry went yeah, overseas. Exactly. Um, you'll see, you know, the value of your property go down overnight. Because at the end of the day, I mean, property is great, but that's not not the business we're in. We're, we're in the housing business. So you need people sure. and jobs. Yeah. Yeah. So people always ask, I, uh, I'm in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I buy a lot of single family houses down here, but I refuse to buy a large multifamily down here. And people are always trying to sell me these apartment complexes in South Louisiana. And I'm like, no. And they're like, why? I'm like, well, you know, a major, major part of our economy is the oil industry. If mm -hmm. something, if, if oil goes bust or some law is passed that negatively impacts the oil industry, I mean, it happened in the eighties and we could, I mean, we could have catastrophic loss I and mean, 50% of the population can move away and, and if, you know, or my tenant base could move away and that would be, that'd be catastrophic. I'm not going to buy a 10 million, $20 million property in any area that is that susceptible from a lack of, you know, job diversity. Yeah, it's interesting to say that. So I, I live in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, um, have here my whole life. And I don't invest in multifamily here for a similar reason. I just don't think that it's a great multifamily market. We still have, you know, affordable single family homes. We don't have population density. Population is declining here. Um, so I don't think that, you know, although I live here, that it'd be wise to invest in multifamily here. And that's why I invest, you know, down the Sun Belt. Awesome. So we talked about it a little bit yesterday, but for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about how you're funding these? Because you're you're putting together some pretty large projects. I believe the one that we're looking at 
uh, behind you was a seventy plus million dollar purchase. Yep, it was seventy three million dollar purchase price. Um, yeah, you know, we do a little differently than the traditional syndication model. Um, given my background in construction development, I have some experience with, you know, institutional private equity and, and mezzanine debt. Um, so some of our deals we do fund 100%. Um, you know, country club money, raising it uh, from individual investors, 50, 100k at a time. Um, other deals we do have a middle of the capital stack that will bring in uh, some private equity or mezzanine debt. Um, which allows us to increase returns define, for our investors. Could you define mezzanine debt for our listeners? That- uh, yeah, it's basically a, a second position loan. Think of it as a, a commercial home equity loan. Um, so you have a loan behind your your senior loan. So what portion of your of your your equity raise would you say you do the traditional, as you say, the country club way, fifty hundred dollars at a time, like? Um, and what portion would you say you, you allocate to either private equity or mezzanine debt? It's, it's a deal by deal. Um, again, you know, pref equity and, and mezzanine debt is leverage. Um, and that presents, uh, some advantages and disadvantages. The, the disadvantage being it is a more highly levered. So it needs to be paired with the right project that makes sense to put additional leverage on. And that's where, you know, the value add and the forced depreciation starts to make sense. And you see a lot of people using, you know, bridge loans in the same sense where they'll get a higher leverage loan, they'll fund their CapEx in the loan, renovate the property, and then refi into, you know, a different debt product. Um, so the kind of similar strategy in the sense that, you know, you're pairing this higher leverage with a business plan that accounts for it and you plan on taking it out later. Um, but typically we try not to go above 85% of the capital stack for this leverage point of either the pref equity or the mezzanine debt. Um, and then the last 15, 20%, uh, we fund with common equity between the managing partners and then raise from our individual investors. So when it comes to raising equity, what do you, obviously you're, you know, spreading the word on, on local podcasts. What else do you do to attract local and, you know, investors that, that don't fall into those other categories that the country club that you referred to? Um, yeah, it's really a, a lot of word of mouth. And then we do partner with, uh, you know, co-sponsors that have larger investor networks than us. Um, our focus is, is really on acquisitions and operations. We do a little bit of capital raising, um, but outside of the institutional capital and our small group of investors, um, you know, we do partner with a lot of co-sponsors who capital raise a lot better than us, which allows us to focus on what we're good at. And that is, you know, sourcing quality investments and, you know, successfully managing them and the business plan. Awesome. So you, you're, that was my next question is kind of what, what are the roles and responsibilities, you know, different, different folks, you know, Crestworth Capital, my group focuses, you know, more so on capital raising. Um, you know, that's not all we do, but if that's, you know, and we have co-sponsors that, that focus more on the acquisition and operation side. So with you being focused more on the acquisition side, um, are all of your acquisitions broker based or do you any do you do any type of off market direct to owner lead generation type most of our deals are you know fully marketed deals and i think that's just due to the product type that that we purchase um we're pretty scrappy in that we're, we're a small shop, but, uh, we're bidding against, you know, Blackstone and Graystar and just massive institutional investment funds, um, that are looking for quality investments that, that we are. Um, so 
if you're selling one of these assets, uh, especially in this market, it, it's crazy not to go through a full marketing process right now. Um, sure. We're seeing, you know, even 12 months ago where you'd have, you know, best and final, and then maybe a, a closed final round, you know, some of these deals we're seeing three, four five rounds of best and final and, and pricing guidance um, isn't really relevant anymore just because the market's that hot. So if you have a quality asset that you're selling and you're crazy to you know, sell yourself short by selling it off market. Right. Yeah. A lot of the off market stuff is typically the previously, you know, mom and pop that were yep. in a 50 unit over here. Yeah. And then those guys, you know, they, they've owned that property for 20 years. They've paid it off twice, but uh, you know, in the properties that we're buying, it's a pretty short cycle of three to five years and you know, they're selling it off again. So how does that make you feel going up against those heavy hitters like that? And I mean, do you ever get, you ever go, well, I mean, if Blackstone's not willing to pay that, why, why am I willing to pay that? You know, is that something that you wrestle with? I would assume competing with, you know, those, those, those people on that level, does that, does that ever, what do you think makes you feel like you can execute the project more efficiently than, than a Blackstone? Um, yeah, we're a lot cheaper operating the Blackstones and the big funds. Um, you know, they, they have tons of employees. Uh, they have lots of audit requirements for their funds. Um, their overhead's a lot higher. So we can generate better returns on the same property than they can. I will say bidding against them, competing with them is incredibly frustrating. Um, <laughs> we're absolute pros at coming in second place. Um, getting into first place, I, I still don't know what the secret sauce is, but we're, we're lucky to win the ones we've won. But with that on the backside, when we exit these properties, we're going to be selling to Graystar and Blackstone. Um, and they have a lot lower return threshold than we do. Um, so they can, you know, I don't want to use the word overpay, but they can pay more for these properties than a syndicator can. And they frequently do. Absolutely. Awesome. What other kind of challenges do you see operating in, in that space? Really it's, it's in the acquisitions pieces where the most challenges are operations are, are a lot smoother because you have the scale, you know, you can hire, you know, very professional third-party property management companies that, you know, have the resources and the back end accounting to do things properly. Uh, the debt's a lot more attractive because of the scale, but, uh, you know, dealing with the brokers and winning the property, negotiating, you know, the LOI and the PSA, and then because you have to bid so aggressively, we're talking about, you know, closing timelines that, you know, are sometimes 45 days on, you know, 30, 40, $50 million acquisition. So working your way through the contract period is pretty stressful because you're running, you know, at, at warp speed, trying to get this transaction closed. Absolutely. I can only imagine. So can you detail one of your, your, your favorite deal for us kind of go over high level, you know, price, how it's performing and what the acquisition looked like and what the capital stack looked like. Yeah. Um, I think we'll go, we got a property did purchase back in March, um, in Sarasota, Florida as a 2016 built 148 unit, uh, apartment community in Sarasota, Florida. Um, and that's awesome. That's really, if I could find more in that sweet spot of this kind of early two thousands, late model product, um, where the developers really cheapened up the interior finishes, um, it's awesome. So we came in with a renovation budget, like 6,500 per door, um, exterior of the property is gorgeous. Uh, it's well amenitized, well located. Um, but the interior kitchens were just incredibly ugly. Like they must've got 
incredible discount fell off the back of the truck, super dated. It looked terrible, man. But the rest of the property was awesome. Um, you know, at the time when we underwrote it, we're looking at like, wow, this is really holding back rents. How ugly these kitchens are. They're sitting back, you know, 150, $200 behind, you know, the property down the street, which is, you know, older and not as nice, but uh, the kitchens don't look like garbage. So we came in and uh, remodeled it. And this is another part of our strategy is really looking deep into the market where the property's located. So we initially underwrote, you know, 150, $200 increases on renovated units. Um, we've renovated and the market has moved so much. The market vacancy is, is 1.5% across Sarasota, Bradenton, Northport. Um, there's just not enough new supply to keep up with the people moving down there. Um, which is driving rents astronomically. So we're seeing now post renovation anywhere from five to six hundred dollar increases um, on rents when we initially underwrote, you know, one hundred fifty two hundred dollars. Oh wow! Um, so that was a twenty six million dollar uh, purchase price on that property, and we get calls at least every other week unsolicited of people trying to purchase that that property from us. Um, you know, we've had offers up to 36 million and we just purchased this thing back in March. <laughs> so the market is insane right now. What is your, um, outlook for the market going forward for 2022 through 2026? Um, um again, the beauty of real estate is, um, you know, it's a very inefficient market. You can't pick up a property and move it. You can't trade a property very quickly. Um, you know, there's a lots of moving parts to it. So because of that, uh, you got to look at it asset by asset location by location. And I think, you know, a lot of the same factors that are driving values right now are going to continue through to 2022, at least, you know, there's going to be a shortage of housing, um, you know, supply chains and labor costs are not going to allow that to be resolved anytime soon. Uh, there's going to be barriers to entry to home ownership, uh, as rates come up as there's limited housing and as the cost to build new housing is, is more expensive, um, which is going to keep, you know, the value of rentals up. Um, wow. so I think it, the outlook's good in the near term. You just said something that uh, I've never heard. I haven't heard anybody say on the topic yet. And that is raising interest rates will cause a barrier to entry for home ownership, which actually helps rental demand as, as large apartment owners, syndicators, we, you know, we're terrified of rates going up and, and making our asset values go down and we want our refis. And it's something we always kind of look at as like the boogeyman, the rising interest rates. But yeah. you've kind of turned that on its head and said, no, man, rising interest rates are great. That's actually going to drive up demand because it's going to, it's going to cause a barrier entry to homeownership. So that's a really cool insight. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we look at rates and I'm kind of a monetary policy nerd. I, I track all of that very closely. Um, and you know, if rates come up very aggressively, very fastly, I think, you know, once again, asset by asset market by market, but that's going to affect asset pricing. Um, it's going to limit the number of trades, going to limit your cash flow. Um, cause you know, property is a leveraged investment. Uh, your senior debt will determine how much cash flow you can get from the property. Um, but that being said, if rates come up, you know, fairly slowly, I don't think it's going to impact commercial real estate very much, but if you're looking at, you know, your homeowners, your home buyers that want to get a new loan, it's going to impact their payment significantly. when you look at those, a ratio to their earnings, it'll impact, you know, the consumer side a lot more than, you know, the investment commercial side. Awesome. Awesome. Absolutely. 
So what is, uh, what's next for y'all? Well, it's getting kind of slow towards the end of the year. Uh, we just closed, uh, the Shoreview apartments here back in December 15th. Um, on the commercial side, the listings tend to, to slow down until you get to the first of the year. Um, but yeah, we're, we're gearing up for acquisitions for 2022 and looking to find some more quality assets. I think, uh, it'll be a little tougher. It's still incredibly competitive out there. Um, and like I said, we're looking to buy quality assets that make, you know, quality investments. So not just looking to throw money out there into anything. Um, but we're going to weed through them and see what we can find next year. Awesome. So I want to hop to our radio round real quick and just give our listeners a little chance to get to know you a little bit better. Um, three quick questions. The first one is what's your favorite book? Oh, I'll give you two actually. So the favorite book is probably still cash flow quadrant. Uh, but I did read one very recently. That was a great book that I recommend, you know, everyone read is pretty relevant at the times. It's called, uh, how money destroys nations. And it kind of talks about hyperinflation, um, and how, you know, you kind of step into to hyperinflation, how money printing is not the best solution to, uh, you know, political problems. Blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I couldn't agree more. I'd never heard of that book, um, but I'm certainly going to hang up and, and go, uh, go order it. Um, sounds like a great topic that, that probably a lot of people these days should be reading. Um, the second one is your, what's your favorite quote? Um, here, let me, let me read it. So I mess it up. It's a good one. That I like it's real valid. Uh, real estate cannot be lost or stolen, nor can it be carried away, purchased with common sense, paid for in full and managed with responsible care. It's about the safest investment in the world. Franklin D. Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard that quote many times. It's a good one. I always wonder uh, how, what Roosevelt had to do with real estate. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Hey, I'm, I mean, I'm most politicians typically, uh, you know, have a lot of their, their income in, in real estate. So I, I guess it didn't come any surprise there. Yeah. And that's uh, kind of, you know, the 1031 has been on the chopping block forever, but I, yeah. every time the conversation comes up, I tell people, you know, most of Congress owns real estate. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not going to slit their own throats. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Um, really kind of hang out with the family, enjoy boating and, and wake surfing. So it's nice to get out in the summers with, with the kiddos and hit the water. Cool. Cool. How, uh, how many kiddos you got? Got two. Uh, I got a six year old and then a two month old. Oh, nice. I, uh, I have a two and a half year old and a 10 month old. So, um, they're, they are a handful that the age difference is what gets you, you know, cause the, the two year olds flapping around like crazy and then yep. the 10 month olds are delicate. So you spend most of your time trying to stop one from accidentally killing the other. You know? Yeah. I, I totally understand that. And uh, I don't know. Jury's still out on whether it's better to keep the, the spread closer or farther apart, but I'll tell you, you know, six years apart, I had to relearn how to do all the baby stuff. I'd completely forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Brian. Could you tell our listeners uh, how they could get in touch with you, how they could learn more about you, how could they, they could invest with you, how could they could follow you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can check us out at uh, equityyieldgroup.com. Um, you can schedule time to talk with uh, myself or my partner. Um, there's a number of resources on the website if you want to learn more about multifamily investing. Um, and if you want to register you know, to become one of our investors, you can do that at the website as well. Awesome. Well, Ryan, again, thank you for joining us. It was great chatting with you and we look forward to uh, keeping up with you on your journey. 
Excellent. Well, thank you, Sterling. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestwordcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>